The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Jeannie Heuser. She is an award-winning citizen activist, formerly with the U.S. Geological Survey, where she worked from 1998 to 2009 as a technical information specialist in their River Studies program. During that time, she worked for nine years on the Missouri River Natural Resources Conference and helped edit fish contaminant testing reports. Ms. Heuser moved to her 270-acre farm in central Missouri and helped found the Missouri River Communities Network. Her farm is located in an agricultural area where genetically modified corn and soybeans are grown, and these crops have been engineered to withstand the spraying of an increasing number of herbicides. Over the decades she's lived on her farm, she's noticed significant insect decline, even though she doesn't use pesticides. And she recently noted dicamba drift had damaged her milkweed, the plant that's essential for monarch butterflies. Throughout her career, Ms. Heuser has focused on natural resource conservation and protection by working in local organic food production, solid and hazardous waste recycling, and Missouri River water quality. Ms. Heuser hopes to be alive on her 30th anniversary on her farm, but she recently declined treatment for terminal cancer and is presently on hospice. Welcome, Jeannie. Hi, Melinda. This is a thrill for me to be on your show because I love it so much and am kind of appalled at how people do not connect the dots as you're trying to do to get to food truth. And people need to learn to connect the dots as fast as possible, in my opinion. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate having your voice. You are the first person I've ever interviewed while on hospice. And I'm grateful to be able to amplify your voice and for you to share your time with me. That is a gift. I wanted to ask you about your work with USGS, but I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that you have been an avid proponent of protecting watersheds and helping to fight back against CAFO assault. And CAFOs, of course, are concentrated animal feeding operations, and they are especially rampant in certain parts of the country, the Midwest being one. But you have taken a deep dive and have been working as an organizer to help change the rules around these facilities. So Let's start with some basic questions. I want to know when your dedication to the environment began. I think it started by the time I was 23, just from what had happened to me in my formative years. In 1962, like many other baby boomers, when Silent Spring came out and we learned about pesticides, you know, I'm 13, 14 years old, that hit me very hard. And From that point on, pesticides were just something you did not do, period. There's no discussion about it. And when I learned that, I put together that I had, when I was 10 years old, been running behind the DDT trucks 
in the fog that was being sprayed in my home in Milwaukee. And my parents were sitting on the porch having their cocktails and laughing at what a good time the kids were having. And, I mean, now I'm going, is that when I got the cancer I have now? You know, I don't know. So that was the first thing. And then by 1970, I had had just personal health problems that made me go to my books and start learning what was happening. And it was then that I learned that what you eat is how you live. It all depends on what you put in your body, the level of health you're going to have. So I put that together with the pesticides and went, well, I'm only going to eat organic food. Of course, that's what you do. And then the topper was Francis Moore LaPay with Diet for a Small Planet. And with that one, I learned that the incredible inefficiency of feeding plants that we grow to animals and then eating the animals instead of just eating the plants that we grow directly. And so putting all those three things together, that was it. That's the foundation of my education, and that's what I've been working on ever since. Well, you went from Milwaukee to Berkeley, California. You enrolled at the University of California there, and then you had an experience with Alice Waters Restaurant. What happened? Well, she was just getting started with Chez Panisse, and her philosophy was to buy local, only local food for her restaurant. You would come to the restaurant and you would eat one dinner that she served and you didn't have any choice, and the food was always in season. So if it was winter, you could not expect to have a tomato because tomatoes do not grow in North America in the winter. And that was when I learned you eat what's in season, you eat what's locally grown, you don't ship things all over the world, which is incredibly inefficient and, I mean, just stupid at this point. I learned that whole philosophy. And I think there's something to be said for the anticipation that comes in waiting for things to be seasonally ready and ripe, like a strawberry. I used to eat strawberries in January, and now I wouldn't think of it. I know, and it's not rocket science here. It's summertime. You've got gardens growing. You've got tomatoes in them. You can them, and you eat them in the winter. You know, we did this. Alice Waters was on a webinar I listened to. She's as old as I am, and, and she was going... It's only been 60 years that we've been eating this way. We can change. We do not have to do it this way. We can go back to what we were doing, which is you grow your food and you can it in the summertime and you save it for the winter. And Frances Morlapay is now my age also. And she has a theory that the overpopulation of the world is not the problem with food. It's the way we eat the food. You don't eat animals so much. You have to eat what the animals are eating. Soybeans, eat tofu. You know, we can eat the soybeans ourselves. We can eat the corn ourselves. We don't have to put it through an animal first and then eat the animal. I don't usually say these things in public, but it's part of dying. You don't hold back anymore. It's it's like, come on, let's just do this. 
World War II, everybody had a victory garden. It was the politically right thing to do at the time. You had to or you wouldn't have food. Exactly. You know, you bring up a point that I want to touch on, and that has to do with overpopulation. Every time I go to a conventional or a big ag conference, it usually starts with a fear-inducing line, like, oh my gosh, we've got all these people we've got to feed. There's going to be billions more. We have to produce more. We have to be more efficient. We have to use these chemicals. And they don't use the word chemical. They call these products, quote unquote, tools in their toolbox. Right. Right. But they are contaminating our water. And I want to thank you for being so responsible in recognizing our connection to water and that we must all be familiar with our watersheds and understand the impact of clean water on our health. Amen. <laughs> yes. And it really does, you know, people don't know what a watershed is. And it's really a very simple concept. The highest water in a basin flows downhill to the lowest part, which is either a stream or a lake, and then it keeps flowing on and on and on. And so what you do on the land in your watershed will run off in the rain and the snow into that lower water and travel on and on. And in Missouri, particularly, we have the Missouri River going through our state. Half of the population gets its drinking water from that. And we're also a big farming state. So all the agricultural chemicals are running off the land, going into the Missouri River, running into the Mississippi River, and going down to the Gulf of Mexico and causing the dead zone. And it's not just ag, but ag is a big part of it. I mean, the cities are running pollutants off into the water, and there's lots of sources. But the agricultural runoff is not regulated in any way. And the only hope to reduce what's going down, the nitrogen going down to the Gulf, is from voluntary practices that farmers have to put in and we citizens are paying the farmers to put in these voluntary practices through our taxes. And it's not a good system. It does not work. And the dead zone, it's still there. Right. So the situation is not improving, and it's a real problem. In preparing for this interview, I went back and I did some research on the Missouri River because you know, for those of us who live in the middle of the country, we're often ignored. You know, we're the flyover zone. But there is so much agricultural production here, specifically of corn and soy, that no matter where you live, if you pick up a product on the supermarket shelf and you see corn or soy, you've got to point all fingers to the Midwest because that's the bulk of the production area. However, the Missouri River, it's the longest river in North America. It has a watershed of more than 500,000 miles. That includes 10 states, and one Canadian province, and it encompasses approximately one-sixth of the United States. So we are all connected in some fashion through water. Yes, absolutely. I want to know about your work at USGS and what you learned in your technical reporting. Well, I think related to what we're talking about that's most important is 
our lab in Columbia, the Columbia Environmental Research Center, does contaminant testing on fish and wildlife. And pesticides and herbicides are endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Our endocrine system in our bodies is very important for regulating everything, particularly reproduction. And these chemicals are disrupting that system in fish. And sturgeon have, there's intersex, both sexes in one fish in the sturgeon, and there's reduced egg and sperm count. And that's one of the biggest things that is critical to the herbicides that are running off into the water, and it's that, and the pesticides, but it's also any drug, any pharmaceutical that humans are taking in their body or animals are taking into their body, and they poop and pee it out, runs down into the watershed and into the waters, and then that water, like in the Missouri River, is being pumped out as drinking water. And that water cannot be cleaned up enough to take those chemicals out. So we are drinking those chemicals. And I don't think people understand that they're getting this stuff through their water, even when it's filtered. Mm. And it's a very dangerous situation. I mean, Women on birth control pills, they pee that out, and then they're drinking it again in their water, as is everybody else. It's interesting that you mentioned the sturgeon, because I remember doing some research looking at frogs and the impact of atrazine. And same situation, there were male body parts, but there were female reproductive organs inside what appeared to be a male. Yep. It seems to be reaching multiple species. And these are the canaries in the coal mine, aren't they? Oh, yeah. But none of the rules test for pharmaceuticals in the water. The EPA isn't coming up with any rule. Nobody's coming up with any rules because it is such a terrible problem and it's so connected with the drug industry and the profits being made there. And the PFAS, that is blowing everything wide open about the 85,000 man-made chemicals we've got out in the world now that are showing up in everything. I mean, we are living in a toxic soup. 60 years since Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, and we are living in her worst nightmare. Mm. We have not solved anything. We are increasing the use of these chemicals massively especially on farmland. The increase of pesticides on farmlands is, I looked up numbers, it's unfathomable how much it's increased in, since 1990. It, yeah. It's just shocking. Yeah. I'm being a lot more negative here than I thought I was going to be, Melinda, but I'm scared. Yeah. I am really scared for our world from these problems. Right. Well, Jeannie, let me take one break because I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Jeannie Heuser. She is an award-winning citizen activist, formerly with the U.S. Geological Survey. She has had a wide and eclectic career in food and agriculture. She also started a community food store where she provided a marketplace for regional farmers. 
and through the Monito Community Neighborhood Alliance. She has also been looking at her regional watershed and all of the agricultural pollutants that are affecting it. So she is dedicated to local food production, as well as natural resources protection and conservation. Jeannie, I want to tell you, my first experience with the USGS was when I saw a report that measured glyphosate in rainwater. And so we're talking about the application to the farmland. We're talking about the runoff that ends up going down the river into the Gulf. I think we can get our heads around that. But how many of us understand the water cycle? Oh, it's very difficult, yeah. And the nitrogen cycle is particularly difficult. And I'm actually at the USGS right now. They've hired somebody new to do an educational campaign on the nitrogen cycle because it's such an important key. And, you know, we're all talking about this nitrogen and the nutrients running off of the land and going down to the Gulf of Mexico and the cycle that nitrogen goes through is so complicated. So USGS is going to try to figure out how to make it people-oriented. I got to put a plug in here for the USGS because I did not know before I started working for this agency how important it is to our nation. And the data that USGS puts out is absolutely fabulous. The studies are difficult, and it takes a little work to understand these sometimes, but they have information on everything about the natural resources. They've been monitoring the waters of the country for years and have incredible data that's all public information. You don't have to fool around getting data from USGS. So it is a resource everyone should have on their desktop, ready to click for information. Are their hands tied at all politically? This is one of the things about USGS that drives me crazy is that I can't get them to make an opinion because they are just providing the information. They do not make judgments. I think there is no political bias in this agency. I mean, it's been in existence since 1879. I just can't say enough about it. And I feel blessed that I got to work there. And the scientists are so skilled. And they're definitely the go-to place to get solid, truthful information about science. Well, I'll provide a link to that organization, Jeannie, because I agree. I have found a wealth of information there, and especially as it applies to water quality. I want to talk about the Department of Natural Resources And I guess many of us think that we can rely on government agencies like the EPA, the FDA, the DNR to protect our health. They're the watchdogs looking out for water quality, which, by the way, I have to add here that water is our most important nutrient, and it is the first environment in which humans develop. We develop in the womb. We are intimately connected to our watershed. So one would think that the DNR would play a very critical role in protecting these fragile environments. Tell me, how does the DNR work, Department of Natural Resources, and what keeps them from being more effective? The DNR is mandated to follow statutes that are written by the legislators. So every legislative 
session, there's hundreds of bills put in that are going to change the statutes in the state. And so the most powerful lobbyists get what they want put into the statutes through this process. DNR is mandated to follow the statutes. So right there, they get trapped, and they cannot, even if there's something in the statute that is detrimental to the water, they can't defend it because that's not what they're authorized to do. So the DNR takes the statute and turns it into a rule. And when the rule is being written, that is where the public can be involved. And if you're a stakeholder at DNR, you are at the bargaining table with the industry and you duke it out. You duke out what's going to be in the rule to try to protect your communities. And that's what we're doing with the CAFO rules right now is that we know CAFOs aren't going away anytime soon. So we've got to have rules that protect our communities because right now there's none. The CAFOs spew out hydrogen sulfide and ammonia and particulate matter into our neighborhoods just through big old fans. And it travels three to five miles in the neighborhood, causing asthma in families. And there's no air pollution rule. The waste from CAFOs is applied any place in the state in any quantity. There's no rules about how much you can put in one place. We know CAFO waste contributes to E. coli in our impaired waters, but we can't prove it. So... It's very bad, and we just are trying to change the rules. That's all we have to do. How do you become a stakeholder? Show up. You just have to show up. And DNR is very responsive to you showing up. And they, I think they're bending over backwards right now to include stakeholders in the CAFO world particularly. And because of the pandemic and switching everything to Zoom... The ability to participate has just skyrocketed. I would go to meetings where there were two of us at the meetings. Now there can be 60 of us. It's incredible. So it's a ripe time to get involved. And you can do it from in your pajamas in front of your computer. (laughs) Right. Even if you're on hospice, you can still participate. Even if you're on hospice. I mean, yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad you qualified that because when we hear the word stakeholder, maybe we should insert the word citizen. Oh, yeah, citizen stakeholder. That's what we are. Yeah. All right. Now, I want to open the floor to you because we have about five minutes left, and I want you to share with our listeners what insights do you want our listeners to know from your 75 years of being on this earth? Well, one thing I would like young people to know is that You know, I said I I was, by 23, I had these passions. And what I did, I did a test in how to run my life. And I decided to just follow whatever particular environmental passion I had at the time, like organic food. I started an organic food store to sell it to my neighborhood and to buy locally. So I just did what my passion was, and I always got a job from it. 
So it's a trick of life, I think, that you follow what you love to do, and sometimes you have to volunteer first, but then it just leads to a job. That's how I got my job at USGS. I just asked them for help about a slideshow I was presenting. They liked my slideshow so much that they hired me to be a PR person, and I didn't plan any of that. So I highly recommend that. I hope people will realize when they buy meat at the grocery store, they are buying it from a CAFO, and that 80% of all the antibiotics in the world are going into these animals to keep them from getting sick and dying in CAFOs, and you are eating that in the meat you're eating, and it's running into the water, polluting the water. So be aware when you eat meat like that, that's what you're contributing to. And I would like everybody to stop eating so much meat if they can, because every amount we can reduce reduces the need for CAFOs. And I would say to everyone, stop poisoning the earth. Just stop poisoning the earth. Look at the cleaning chemicals you're using in your home and see if they're contributing to the poison. Look at the foods you're eating and if there's poisons in them. It is so ubiquitous that you have to pay attention to what you're doing in your life now. And we just can't go on poisoning the earth like this. Yeah. It seems real simple. (laughs) I don't know how it's all going to be done, but we just have to stop. It's not sustainable. I really appreciated the way you revealed that Citizen activism was not a choice for you, but a compulsion to right the wrongs humans do to the earth. And I think that for those of us who feel that way, it's important to share what matters, what can we do. And you left me with three points that I thought should be mentioned. You said, learn your watershed and do everything you can do politically to protect it from pollution. And this idea of connecting to the earth through water, I think, is critical. You said, show up, get involved in local government. And, you know, I think that we tend to be bombarded with so many issues. And I like that you say, no, just focus on the one at the time that speaks to you most. And then you said, understand that the food system is broken, which you, you know, referred to just now. So, Jean, if you had a magic wand during your time in hospice, what would you do? Well, I... uh... (laughs) I'd do away with CAFOs, that's for sure. And I would really like to empower people to get involved and pick one thing. I know it's hard if you're physically or financially unable to take on one more thing in your life. But, you know, if you could grow a garden, can you grow your own garden? Just to look at simple little steps. It would make such a difference if every citizen was doing one thing, because the wellspring of that occurring could really make some change. So just turn off that next TV show and go outside in nature and see if there's something that grabs you that you might want to get involved in. I love Try that. To find something to do. Do something. Do one something. Do one <laughs> thing because that turns into a wellspring. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, we've got to close. We're out of time. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Jeannie Heuser, award-winning citizen activist, formerly with the U.S. Geological Survey. I will provide a link to both the USGS and the Monoto Community Neighborhood Alliance that you started. You've got a beautiful website for activism no matter where you live on Earth. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Melinda.